Church, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled One Another. The word one another is found a hundred times in your New Testament. It's written in 94 verses. 47 of those verses seem to direct us by giving us instructions on how we relate one to another. We've already discussed what it means to forgive one another and to love one another. Today we come uh, to the lesson on encourage one another. So with your Bibles drawn, I ask you to stand out of reverence to God's most precious word. I want to actually begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, and read through chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers, about dates and times, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. No, you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us... Not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. When the Apostle Paul comes to the end of 1 Thessalonians, he is addressing some of the questions from the church. I think that congregation had asked him, when death comes for our loved ones, will that separate our loved ones from the Lord? I think they also asked the question, has Jesus already returned and somehow we missed it? And if he has not returned, when he does return, will we experience wrath and the judgment of God on the day of the Lord. These are the questions that seem to be on the hearts and minds of that first century congregation in Thessalonica. Paul begins answering those questions in chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. The phrase fall asleep does not describe what happens on a Sunday morning to teenagers after a D-Now weekend. But fall asleep in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, describes the dead. So Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who are dead. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So right out of the chute, the apostle wants the church to know, listen, 
Death is not the end of the road. Death is merely a bend in the road. Death is not an accident. Death is an appointment. Death is not untimely, but death is very timely. Death is, is not a cessation of life. Death is a continuation of life. Elsewhere, the apostle write in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That the moment you stop breathing air in this world, you start breathing air in heaven. For to be absent from this body is to be at home with the Lord. So you have nothing to fear. You don't need to worry about the power of death. Because of Jesus Christ, death has been, uh, uh, death is, is, is nothing that, that we ought to fear. For Jesus is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He also says, when it comes to the idea or the question of have we missed the second coming of Christ. He says in chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend. In other words, y'all ain't missed it. Because when Jesus comes back, it will be evident and it'll be obvious. He is not yet returned, but when he returns, the Lord himself will descend. This second coming of Christ will be visible. It will be literal. It will be physical. The Lord himself will descend. And he ain't gonna be quiet about it. Because Paul says that when the Lord descends, he will come with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. In other words, nobody's going to miss it. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, has now stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. The Lord will descend. And when he comes, Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. In 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle says that when the dead in Christ are raised, that which is raised perishable will become imperishable. That which is raised mortal will become immortal. It will happen in a twinkling of an eye. And then Paul says that we who are left will be snatched up, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. That word that's translated as caught up it it does mean snatched up it's the idea of the rapture happening that when Jesus returns he will snatch up the redeemed he will snatch up the church and we will be caught up in the air and we'll be with him forever it's the same word that is used to describe how Philip was snatched up in Acts chapter 8 out of the sight of the Ethiopian eunuch It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 to describe how he was snatched up or caught up to the third heavens. Now, i got to be honest with you. As a Kentucky boy who loves basketball, and I always found myself to be slim, slow, and stationary, this vertical leap that we're all about to get is something that is nothing short of awesome. There's coming a day when Jesus will return. The Lord himself will come. He will be accompanied with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will be snatched up. We who still are alive, we also will be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. And then Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage each other with the reality that Jesus is coming back. Now, I don't mean to diminish your suffering, and Paul doesn't mean to minimize your pain. Neither Paul nor I want to try to uh, 
kind of uh, belittle uh, the, the things that leave you up at night and the things that you worry about and the suffering and the tragedy and the hurt and the disappointment. But what Paul tells the first church, I tell you, hang on, because Jesus is coming back. So be of good cheer. Hang on. Hold on. Your suffering has a shelf life. Your disappointment has an expiration date. There's coming a time when Jesus will come back and he will right all the wrongs. He will rescue his church. He will come for us personally and powerfully. He himself will descend. So you hang on and you hold on. Let's encourage each other with these words. We encourage each other not in what we are going to do in the future, but what Jesus is going to do in the future. So we encourage one another. The word encourage in Greek and English is a compound word. It's encourage. That we place courage in people. And when courage is in someone, fear is fleeting. So if you have courage in the kingdom, if you have courage in Christ, then you have a confidence in who he is and what he's going to do. And if this encouragement is in you, then fear over this world is fast fleeting. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. Don't worry about your sickness, your sadness, your suffering. Don't, don't worry about your problem, predicament, and prognosis. Don't let that just overwhelm you because Jesus is coming back. So encourage one another with these words. Now regarding dates and times, Paul says, we don't need to write you. The reason we don't need to write you is because Paul says, I don't have the foggiest idea of when it's going to happen. I don't know the date or the time. In fact, even Jesus said that the dates and times are reserved for the Father. Jesus even said that's one of the things that he laid aside when he came to earth. That, that even Jesus, when he walked this sod, did not know the dates and the times. Only the Father in heaven knows the appointed date and the appointed time. But throughout this passage, Paul compares and contrasts all of humanity. Now I realize that there are 7.8 billion people on planet Earth. We reside in approximately 200 nations. There is great diversity in humanity. But the Bible describes only two kinds of people. Those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. It describes it in various ways. Sheep and goats. Wheat and weeds. The redeemed versus the reprobates. Believers versus non-believers. In our passage, it's children of the light versus children of the darkness. And Paul says that while it's true that Jesus has not yet returned, but he's coming one day in the future. And when he comes, it will be unmistakable. When he comes, it will be unavoidable. When he comes, your proximity to Jesus will determine your perspective of the day of the Lord. If you are in Christ, the day of the Lord will be glorious. If you are outside of Christ, the day of the Lord will be gruesome. If you are in Christ, the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Messiah, it is welcomed by you. If you are outside of Christ, the second coming of our Lord is something that you hope to be avoidable, but it's not. So, your proximity to Jesus, whether you're in Jesus or outside of Jesus, your proximity to Jesus will determine your perspective on the day of the Lord. 
If you're in Christ, you can't wait for it to happen. If you're outside of Christ, it'll be something that will be disastrous and horrendous. Now, the apostle is not trying to scare anybody into salvation, and neither am I today. He's just answering the questions. Does death separate our loved ones? No. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Has Jesus come back yet and we missed it? No. Because when Jesus comes back, it will be evident and obvious to everyone. And and when he comes, do we have anything to fear? Will we experience the wrath of God? No. So long as you are in Christ. But if you're outside of Christ, it will It'll be terrible. In fact, in the passage, uh, the majority of what I read for you, uh, Paul speaks about us versus them, we versus they. Did you hear that? He said that the day of the Lord for them will be like a, a woman who has sudden labor pains. They will not be able to escape it. He doesn't say that we won't escape it. He says they won't escape it. Who are the they? The they are those outside of Christ. For those outside of Christ, the second coming of the Lord is like a thief that comes in the night. You're not prepared for it. You don't, you don't know that the thief is coming. But Paul says for us insiders, for those who are in Christ, we ought not to look for the day of the Lord as some thief in the middle of the night. We know he's going to return. We're ready for him to return. But if you're outside of Christ... If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, when Jesus splits the eastern sky, when he descends, it'll be shocking to you. It'll be as if a thief came in the middle of the night to rob you. It'll be as sudden as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Now here's a news flash. I've never been pregnant. But my wife has been pregnant twice. And both times, I have watched sudden labor pains come upon her. When labor pains came upon my wife, the world was turned upside down. When labor pains came upon my wife, it was evident, it was obvious, not just to her, but to me, but to everybody else that was all around us. We knew that this was the moment. Labor pains had come. And Paul says, for those that are outside of Christ, it'll be as sudden as labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. And they, on the outside of Christ, they will not be able to escape. It's not that we won't escape, but they, on the outside of Christ, They will not escape. Paul uses the majority of this passage to compare and contrast what it is to be a child of the light versus a child of darkness. And not only is our perspective to the day of the Lord different, but actually the way we live everyday life is different. If you are in Christ You live today differently. It's not just that you live differently at the eschaton, at the end of time when Jesus returns. It's not just in the there and then. It's in the here and now. That even right now, if you are in Christ, you live differently than those who live outside of Christ right now in this moment. And the differences are stark. The contrast is overwhelming. We have a different identity, verses 4 and 5. We have different activity, verses 6 to 8. We have different destiny, verses 9 to 11. 
Paul says that we have a different identity. I want you to revisit with me verses 4 and 5 of our passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 5. Look at it with me. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Who you are influences how you behave. If you know who you are, then you know how to behave. If you know your identity, it will influence your activity. Let me say it another way. That our convictions shape our character. And our character is revealed in our conduct. Because who we are influences how we behave. Paul wants to ask the question, do you know who you are? If you are in Christ, do you really know who you are? Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. He said that in John chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. This is the only analogy that Jesus shares with us. He says of himself elsewhere, I am the bread of life. He never says, you are the bread of life. He says of himself, I am the good shepherd. He never says, you are the good shepherd. He says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He never says, you are the way, the truth, and the life. But he does say, I am the light of the world, and you are the light of the world. That if we are in Christ, we are like Christ. That if we are in Christ, our identity is bound and found in him. We are sons and daughters of light because Jesus is light and Jesus resides resides inside of us and so his light shines out from us. This is who we are. This is the Bible's way of describing a dominant characteristic. When Paul says that you and I are children of light, it says that our dominant characteristic is our identity that we are light as Jesus is light. Elsewhere, the Bible says that Barnabas is the son of encouragement, that his dominant characteristic was his encouragement. It says of James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, they were known as the sons of thunder because that was their dominant characteristic. One day, Jesus was evicted out of a Samaritan village. The boys didn't take too kindly to that. James and John go up to the master, and they say, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and torch this town? Now, I don't know if they really had the power to call down fire from heaven, but maybe what they were saying is, can we vandalize these streets? Can we light up this city? You know, kind of like the cities of America were lit up in the summer of 2020 and there was so much vandalism, so much fire that was set ablaze. Maybe they were saying, God, can we just torch this town? Can we show them who's boss? Can we vandalize these streets? And Jesus said, boys, no, don't don't you do that. Leave that to the Lord. But you just come and you, you follow me. From that moment on, everybody called James and John sons of thunder. Because they wanted to call down fire from heaven. I can well imagine that as they walked around with the other disciples and there was a little rumble in the sky, there was a thunderstorm over the horizon, I bet that there were other disciples that said to James and John, hey, did you guys do that? 
I bet they kind of poke fun at them. They say, hey, you guys are the sons of thunder. This is your dominant characteristic. You have so much zeal, so much passion for the Lord. You are willing to torch a town for Christ. Because this is the Bible's way of describing the dominant characteristic of life. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says your identity is that you are in Christ. Therefore, you are sons and daughters of the light. We're supposed to love the light. We're supposed to learn from the light. We're supposed to cling to the light. We're supposed to run to the light. We're supposed to share the light. We are to be individuals who have the light of Jesus Christ living in us, thereby through us, so that our greatest identification is that we are sons and daughters of light. If I were to ask you, when you think of the word identity, and when you think of your identity, what comes to mind? Your name, your gender, your occupation, your nationality, in our culture, your sexual orientation. When I say the word identity, when I say what is your identity, what comes to mind? You say, well, you know, I'm Davin, I'm a man, I'm a preacher, I'm an American, uh, I'm a heterosexual. I mean, this is who I am. Ultimately, the question is, at what point when you are describing your identity, does it finally dawn on you, hey, wait a minute, I'm a son or daughter of light. Paul is saying this ought to be the top shelf identification of your life. This ought to be the greatest identification marker in your existence. If you are in Christ, you are like Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the light. Jesus is the light and you are the light of the world. So this identity is greater than young versus old, rich versus poor. Male versus female, Democrat versus Republican, member of the marching band versus member of the varsity football team. This identification marker is different than even the fans who say War Eagle or Roll Tide Roll. I mean, this identification marker is the biggest identifying marker of your life. If you are in Christ, your identity is that you are a son or a daughter of light. This is who you are. Not only is your identity different, but we have different activity. Look with me once again in verses 6 to 8. Paul writes, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Once again, friend, Who you are influences how you behave. Your convictions shape your character. Your character is revealed in your conduct. So you and I have different activity. We are not like the children of the dark. We do not live like the darkness. We live as children of the light. Paul says that those that are groping in the darkness, those who are living like the darkness... Not only are they in the dark, but they're asleep in the dark. Not only are they asleep in the dark, they're passed out drunk asleep in the dark. This describes the moral and intellectual degradation of darkness. 
It just continues to spiral downward. Did you see it? I mean, they're, just, they're not just in the dark, they're asleep in the dark. Not just asleep in the dark, but they're passed out drunk in the dark. This does not describe your activity. As a child of God, as one who is a son or daughter of light, your identity shapes your activity. So you live like Jesus. What does it mean to be a son or daughter of the light? What's the activity that we're supposed to be about? Well, Paul gives us the answer. He says that we are to be alert and self-controlled. We're to be alert and self-controlled. The word alert is present tense. It's a continuous action. It's not just that we're sometimes alert. We continue to be alert. The word alert means awake and aware. So we're awake to the things of God. We're aware to the movement of God. We're aware to the instructions of God. And because we're alert to that, awake to that, aware of that, then we want to emulate that in our life. Listen, I realize that none of us are perfect. In fact, there are far too many times that I resemble the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. That which I want to do, I don't do. That which I hate, I continue to do. What a wretched man that I am. I don't know about you, but I can resemble that from time to time. But the pattern of my life and the pattern of the decisions of your life ought not to resemble darkness, but to resemble light. We have a different activity. We're we're alert, we're awake, we're aware to the things of God, and we demonstrate self-control. This word, self-control, is the same word that he uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says that you ought to avoid sexual immorality and learn to control your body. The word for control your body is the same word as self-control. That because we are in Christ, we have different activities in life and the actions of our life resemble big brother Jesus. So if Jesus is in us, then we strive to act like him. I think that I would go one step further and I'm confident that the apostle would agree with this, that not only are we to be self-controlled, but we are to be spirit-controlled. That If Jesus is the Lord of your life and you are in Christ, then the Spirit of God is in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you, beloved. The same Spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and working in you. So your life as a child of the light, your life ought to be Spirit-controlled. So you are controlled by the Spirit of the Lord. I've heard from people who have said, you know, Pastor, I really just can't help the way I talk. I can't help what I say. I can't help how I think. I can't help how I feel. I can't really help what I do. And the gospel says, yes, you can. The gospel, the spirit of the Lord that resides inside of you can shape the words that you say. Some people have said, you know what? I just use these words. They don't mean a whole lot. I don't really mean the the vulgarity of it. I just kind of speak it. It's It's just the words that I say. It was Johnny Hunt who said that when he became a Christian, he lost half of his vocabulary. When he became a a Christian, 
He lost half of his vocabulary. He said, not only was I not supposed to say it, but I didn't want to say it. And the Spirit of God had to control my mouth. Some people say, preacher, I I just can't help. I just can't help how I think. It's my upbringing. I mean, I think like my father thought, and my daddy thought like my granddaddy thought. It's just the way we are. I mean, all of the, all, all of the injustices, all the prejudices, all of the, all of the concerns, all the convictions, it's just kind of ingrained in me. I just can't help the way I think. And the gospel says you can help your stinking thinking, for you set your mind on things above, and you set your heart on things above where Christ dwells. I've had per- people tell me, Pastor, I can't help the way I feel. It's just my feelings. I feel the way I feel. Can't help the way I feel. But the gospel says, yes, you can. For the spirit of God that lives inside of you can control your feelings. For you subject your feelings unto the Lord. You subject your heart. You set your heart on things above. And you arrest anything that is not of God in your thoughts or in your feelings. People say, Pastor, I can't help what I do. I can't help how I react. I can't help the fact I got a short fuse. I mean, I can't help that. It's just kind of who I am. I can't help the fact that I'm selfish. It's kind of who I am. You got to like it or lump it. You got to love me or hate me. But that's who I am. But the Bible says that we have been bought with a price. So we glorify God in everything that we have. Listen, friend, your salvation is positional. For you are under Christ and no one and nothing can snatch you out of the hands of God. Your salvation is positional. Your sanctification is progressive. So that you actually have something to do with your sanctification. That's why Paul says, put on love and faith as a breastplate. And put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Your salvation is positional. You are in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of his hands. You cannot lose your salvation. But the Bible, the New Testament also speaks that your sanctification, the process of being made holy like Jesus, is somewhat progressive in the sense there are some things you have to do. You've got to put on faith and love. You've got to put on hope as a helmet of salvation. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, now, wait a minute, Uh, this idea of a breastplate and a helmet, that sounds like the armor of God, which Paul will further flesh out in Ephesians chapter 6. And, beloved, you're exactly right. But Ephesians 6 is written after 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think that God's Spirit is working within the apostle to help him shape out and flesh out this idea of the armor of God. But he begins with the two most primary parts, the breastplate and the helmet. Later on, he'll get to the belt and the sword and the shield and the shoes. He'll get to everything else. But for right now, he says it's the breastplate of faith and love. It's the helmet of the hope of salvation. You can be a skilled warrior, but if you go to battle and you face the adversary without a breastplate, a well-placed arrow can pierce your heart. You can be an advanced warrior, but if you go to battle without a helmet... It only takes one fatal blow to the head to kill you. So Paul says, you put on the breastplate, you put on the helmet. I don't want you to primarily focus on the pieces of the armor. I want you to hear the biblical triad of faith, hope, and love. Put on faith, 
hope, and love. Put on faith. What is faith? Faith is trusting God regardless of the outcome. When you trust God, when you don't know how it's going to turn out, that's faith. Trusting God regardless of the outcome. What is hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. In the Bible, hope is a calm, confident assurance that God's got this. That's hope. It's a calm, confident assurance that God's got this. And what is love? Love is loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And Paul tells the church what I tell you today. We've got to put on faith, hope, and love. Every day. We've got to put on faith, hope, and love. Ultimately, Paul will say in Romans chapter 13 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That every day you've got to put on Christ. I am not saying that every day you have to be saved all over again. What I am saying is that every day, Christian, you ought to act like you're saved. Every day you've got to put on Christ. You've got to put on faith, hope, and love. You've got to put on the mind of Christ. You've got to put on the heart of Christ. He's got to direct your thoughts and your feelings. He's got to direct your words and your steps. That Jesus has to be the one that you put on. You must clothe yourself with Christ. Let me put it this way. If you don't intentionally put on Jesus every day, the devil will mop the floor with you. If you don't put on Christ every day, the devil will mop the floor with your failings. Whenever I fail Christ, and I do every day, but whenever I fail Christ, more times than not, it's because I did not intentionally put on Christ that day. Let me say it this way, that while the devil is crafty, He's no match for a Christ-clothed Christian. The devil's no match for a Christ-clothed Christian. Every day you put him on. What I'm asking you this morning is, do you have a mechanism? Do you have a system? Do you have a routine where every day you're putting on Christ? Every day you're thinking on him. Every day you are loving him. Every day you are serving him. Every day you are singing of him. Every day you are studying him. Every day you are sharing him. Do you have a mechanism? Do you have a tool? Do you have a routine where every day before you go out the door, you put on Christ? Because if you don't, the devil will mop the floor with your failings. So you and I have to put on Christ. I've been told that if you do something for 21 straight days, it becomes a habit. So this morning I'm asking you, is it habitual that you intentionally, every day, put on the things of Christ? In this passage, faith, hope, love. In Romans 13, he just simply says, put on Christ. Now if I were to ask you, did you put on deodorant this morning? Most of you would sit there and have to think about it. Because you've been putting on deodorant for more than 21 days. Now I realize there are some 6th grade boys that are listening to my voice. 
And right now, sixth grade boys are thinking, I haven't put on deodorant in about three days. And you're right, guys. You're right. You haven't. The people around you can tell. It's exactly right. You haven't put on deodorant. But for most of us, putting on deodorant is just like a habit. It's something that we do. It's in our routine. We don't even really think about it. We just swipe it or spray it, however you do it. And you put on deodorant and you walk out with a new aroma. Because you know it is foul. It is stinky. It is a foul stench to walk out without deodorant on. In a similar way, you've got to put on Christ every day. Once again, I'm not saying you've got to be saved every day. Your salvation is positional. You are under Christ, never to be snatched away. But your sanctification is progressive. So you've got to do so. You've got to put on faith, hope, and love. You've got to put on Christ so that when you walk out, people smell the aroma of the Lord all over you. See, if we are sons and daughters of the light, we have a different identity. We have different activity. Third and finally, we have a different destiny. Once again, look with me in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So that whether we're awake or asleep, which means whether we're living or dead, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. One of the questions the early church asked the Apostle Paul, when Jesus comes back, will we suffer judgment? Will we suffer the wrath of God? And the answer is no. Why? Because of those four glorious words in verse 10. He died for us. I don't know of any sweeter four words in all the sacred script than he died for us. It's not that we don't deserve death. It's just that we're not destined for death. It's not that we don't deserve hell. It's just we're not destined for hell. It's not that we don't deserve eternal punishment from God. It's just we're not destined for eternal punishment from God. It, it's not that we don't deserve eternal death. We're just not destined for eternal death because he died for us. Because he died for us, he took all the wrath upon himself at Calvary. He died for us. He took all the condemnation that we deserve. He died for us. He took all the holy hostility that should be poured out against you and against me. It's not that we don't deserve that. We're just not destined for that. Can I get a hallelujah in the house? Because he died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died for us. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He died for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He died for us. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he died for us. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not important. 
part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. All because he died for us. But Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us that he died for us on Friday. He stayed in the tomb for the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, even into the early hours of Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, every Easter gospel writer says it the same. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. Jesus raised from the dead. The one who was dead began to breathe again. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Not only he died for us, but he was raised for us. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he He holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. So Paul said to the church, encourage one another with these words. Build each other up. Encourage confidence in Christ. Encourage one another with these words. We live in a world when we can get discouraged. The absence of Christ's kingdom courage is prominent in this world. In this world, it is easy to get discouraged. And we are called to encourage one another. It doesn't just mean to slap somebody on the back, say grin and bear it. You're going to be all right. Dust yourself off. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's going to be okay. No. We encourage one another, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. We encourage each other with the truth of not what we will do in the future, but what Christ will do in the future. We encourage each other, not because of our strength for today, but because of his strength in us for today. So if we are in Christ, we have a different identity than those outside of Christ. We have different activity than those outside of Christ. We have a different destiny than those outside of Christ. If you're here this morning and you can honestly say, Pastor, I don't know that I'm in Christ. I think I'm outside of the Lord. I've never acknowledged him as my savior. I've never confessed my sins. I I don't think on him every day. I, I I don't try to please him by what I do. I think I'm outside of Christ. You don't have to stay there. Today can be the day of salvation. Today you can acknowledge that he is king of kings and lord of lords. You can acknowledge that there is a God and you're not him. You can acknowledge That Jesus is the king who came to earth to take upon himself all of your wrath that you deserve. And he died in your place. And his dead body was taken off the cross and buried in the grave. And on the third day, he came back to life. He is victorious. And today, if you're outside of Christ, please hear me. You can change positions by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus. You're on the outside, but you don't have to stay there. If you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And those on the outside 
can come onto the inside. If you're inside Christ and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, is your identity different than the watching world? Is your activity, your everyday life, is it remarkably different than the dark, dingy world? And is your destiny truly different than the children of darkness? If Jesus is in you, then I want you to live like it. If Jesus is your king, then submit to him. If Jesus is your Lord, then think like it. If Jesus really is in charge, then do your business like it. If Jesus really is the master of your life and your family, then live like it. There may be somebody here, and you're outside of Christ today. When the band comes to lead us, we want to invite you to come. Take one of the pastors by the hand and say, I need Jesus. If you're in Christ today, but you're not living like it, if you're in Christ today and you're not acting like it, then today I, I call you to repent of your sin. You can do that right there in your seat, but you can also do it here at the front. And maybe you need to come and pray. And maybe your prayers are for yourself. Maybe they're for somebody else. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, a son or daughter, grandchildren, loved ones, coworkers, classmates, teammates. Maybe you need to pray for somebody else. Regardless, the altar's right here open. Let us encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. And Jesus makes all the difference, not just in the there and then, but in the here and now. So let's live like the light. Let's love the light. Let's run and dance in the marvelous light of our Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. If there are children of darkness that are here, I pray that today there will be a transformation and they will become children of light. For those who are in Christ, those who are sons and daughters of the light, Lord, maybe there's some of us who aren't acting like it. Today, we want to confess our sins to you. Ask for your forgiveness. Lord, have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.